questions that you would help us to understand what you're saying and what you want us to know. And I pray that you would help us today as we look at and continue on uh, the end of the, towards the end of the chapter one of Colossians. And Lord, we thank you for the themes, the revelation that you've given us in this epistle and letter by Paul. We pray that you would continue to use it to help us to live for Christ and live, uh, um, live for him and serve him to the best of our ability. We pray for all those that are ill. We pray that you would be with him. We pray for healing. Pray your blessing upon each family represented here this morning. Pray for those who couldn't be here because they're home or other reasons. We pray you would be with them, keep them safe. For those that are traveling, those that have needs, those that are hurting, those that are discouraged, all of those, Father, that and many of us who have uh, needs, we pray that you would be with us and be and help us. And we thank you that you're the God of all comfort and pray that you would comfort those that are afflicted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, um, so the introduction, I always kind of go back to that and I leave that on a handout even though we move further because I want us to have a sense of where we are in, in, in the organizational. It always helps me if I'm looking at something, to, where am I? How far down am I? What, what, where are we at and what are we talking about? So I think this outline kind of helps us. Uh, four aspects of Paul's ministry. We looked at suffering already and now we're looking at commission to preach. We've been here for, for a number of weeks uh, and then we're looking at concern next. We hit chapter two and then challenge. Now, I've been asking a lot of questions. I'm going to condense that. Um, and first of all, I'm going to ask a few, though, and more as we kind of review where we are. What is the theme? First question. What is the theme of Colossians? And it's um, anybody want to take a. Oh, Betty. Thank you. Exactly, the preeminence of Christ. And by that, we mean that Christ is supreme over all. He is preeminent, means before all. And also, he is sufficient. He is God to do all of the things that he has uh, that he has been sent to do by God. And we notice that chapter, there are four chapters in the book of Colossians. And the first two talk about the supremacy of Christ. And the second two talk about our submission to Christ. Or the first two have doctrine. And the second two are the application, how we are to live our faith according to that doctrine. Okay. Let's start by reading Colossians. Uh, you'll follow along if you're and stay open to Colossians. Um, we'll start with verse 24, and that's that reflects the suffering in verse uh, A, verse 24. A is suffering, talks about the suffering of Paul. He says, Paul. Uh, whereof I, Paul, have made a minister, verse 23, then he goes to 24, he says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you 
and fill up that which is left behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from, the age, from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom, the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom, that whom refers to Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. In verse 29, whereunto I labor, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And I was reminded as I was reading that, um, and when he talks about um, Christ um, being the head of the church, that's also a theme. Ephesians talks about the body of Christ of which he is the head, and Colossians talks about uh, the uh, head of Christ, the Christ who is the head of the church. So they, they just, they, Ephesians talks about the body of which Christ is a head. Colossians talks about the head, Christ being the head of the body. Okay. Now, second question. Paul says he was a minister um, and he was ordained as a I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, verse 25 which is given to me for you to uh, fulfill the word of God. Now, what does that mean to fulfill the word of God? We didn't really talk about that, but we kind of did. Um, and, and you look under Paul's appointment under item B there as a minister of the church. He is to what? At the very bottom paragraph, see where Paul's appointment and then item B, yes. As a minister of the church, he is to blank and blank. Serve and suffer, yes. So Paul is telling them his ministry causes him, he has a responsibility to serve and suffer for the welfare and requirements of the church and the gospel as the Lord directs. And I've written in here, suffering and service for Christ and the church become a duty and responsibility. We also have a responsibility to serve and suffer, even as servants of God and heirs. There are times where we are going to suffer. And Paul says he rejoices when he suffers. I'm working on that. <laughs> I don't quite have all the joy that I'm supposed to have, but I'm working on that. Um, in verse, let's see, Paul says, uh, as a minister, he was to serve and suffer for Christ and as, uh, as 
our Lord. And um, in verse 25, Paul was made a minister to fulfill the word of God, and he is to carry out the preaching of the word of God. Okay, let's turn to page two. I'm going through this kind of fast uh, because we went through it several times before. Review is always good, but um, we don't get any further if I spend all the time reviewing. Okay, so the very top of the page, um, actually, I want to move down um, to see the word Paul's message, number two, verses 25b through 28a. Now, the word of God is one of the terms that Paul uses in verse 25. He said, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me. So that dispensation means arrangement and plan of God. He, God planned and commissioned Paul to be his minister. So he is a, he is a minister for God under the arrangement and plan of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, the message that he has, number two there, you see that Paul's message? Various phrases are used to explain that, what his message is or identify his message. And the first one is the word of God. Um, and that sums up all the oral proclamations of the apostles, and it's also used as a synonym for the gospel, the story of what the Lord, the good news of that Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. And with we, if we repent, we can have salvation. If we, and, uh, we can be saved. Now, item B there, paragraph B, the word of God is revealed as a mystery. Um, it says, it's, he says, I made a minister, verse 25, according to the dispensation or arrangement and plan of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, verse 26, even the mystery. So he's saying the word of God is, the mystery is the word of God which hath been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest. So what is a mystery? Now, that always threw me when I was younger and I read that. I, I kept looking and thinking, okay, is this a whodunit? What? Yes, she, Sheila. I, I think it's something that hasn't been told before. Yes, and, and now revealed. It's... It, you could you could actually just say truth revealed. It's not a secret like a lot of uh, false religions, like the one this was written to refute, say that you have to have a special knowledge to know the secret. Well, this is open for everyone to know. So, and it was revealed here because this was a time appointed by God, and it's. And it's revealed to those that are illumined by the Holy Spirit. I'm reading for that paragraph B. And in the New Testament, it refers to something that was once a secret, but now is known and revealed in the gospel and God's word. And it's used four times in Colossians. 
Um, and those are the two characteristics, hidden from ages and generations past, but now is made manifest to the saints. Now, verse 27, item D there under that same number two on page two, verse 27 reveals that to the saints, God would make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So God is pleased, reading again from that paragraph, to reveal his eternal plan to his saints and how great is the glorious truth made known in the gospel mystery. And uh, a man named Norley, a scholar named Norley said, it is God's will that this mystery, uh, something that was previously unknown, shall be fully explained to the nations, which is another name for Gentiles, in all its riches and glory. Now, if you were a Gentile, you were not part of the Jewish covenant unless you came to the Jews and said, I want to be a part of this. And there was a way to be included. But you were not part of that unless you subscribed to the Jewish faith and came and got into the, doing the offerings and you repented and you became, became took, took on the Jewish faith. Um, and now there's something different. Paul, Paul, in fact, I've written a sentence, Paul was joyful in this passage and in awe of the wonder and divine significance of the previously unexpected prospect of the salvation of the Gentile nations and the inclusion in one body, the body of Christ, the church. So gen the nations or Gentiles are separate from the Jews, but now the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be included into one church because of the work of Christ, the cross. And that's the mystery. Well, what is the mystery? The next, that's part of the mystery. The next, the verse 27b tells us, even to the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Paul goes on to say, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't live in believers, the, the, those of the Jewish faith. He didn't live. The Holy Spirit had to come upon various leaders and individuals that he purposed to send out to do something. You hear Elijah and Elisha talk about, let thy mantle fall on me. And we read where the Holy Spirit came upon people in order to be commissioned to do something. But the Holy Spirit did not live within people in the Old Testament, nor did the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the pillar of fire, he went before them, and uh, pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. But he was not in people. He did not reside within them. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And here, it says, Christ in you. Now, let's look at E. In verse 27b, the re that's the revelation of the mystery. 
That's the open now. The that's the thing that was previously unknown revealed. It's the indwelling of Christ in His people, which now can include Gentiles, previously excluded Gentiles. In fact, the Jews weren't supposed to even associate with the Gentiles. They couldn't even go into their homes. They were supposed to stay away from the Gentiles. Now they're together. So the mystery consists of the offer of salvation, redemption, reconciliation, that is the satisfaction of, of, of uh, the us being at enmity with God and being reconciled to God. Um, it appeared that the Gentiles had been excluded from God's favor for all time. But now the Gentiles are revealed as having been included in his previously unknown plan from the beginning. So the mystery then, this is a quote, the mystery then long hidden but now revealed is not the diffusion or the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles only, but it's the indwelling of Christ in his people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Now, this is a big deal. We don't think about it because we've heard it all our lives, but this is a huge deal. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we know that um, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But most of the time, we don't recognize that Christ lives within us. And this is a huge deal because it gives, it makes all of the resources of God available to us. And I want to read a quote to you it's one of the best quotes I ever read. It's longer, so I want you to have patience, but I want you to, I've talked a while and I haven't put you to sleep, so I want you to sharpen your skills for just a moment and listen to this. This is from a message that was transcribed from MacArthur, John MacArthur, who talks about what it means for Christ to live in us. And this is the thing that I think we take for granted and don't take advantage of. And I want, you to, I want you to recognize this. When you leave this class today, I want you to think, thank God that Christ lives within me and I have all the resources that I could ever need to help me in my Christian life. So this is, this is four or five paragraphs I just want you to hear. So Put your listening caps on, okay? So he says, that's what we're saying. God wants to come and live in you. That's what we're saying. We are rich because Christ is in us. This passage talks about um, riches that we have, spiritual riches. He says, we are rich because Christ is in us. And that's rich. That's rich beyond imagination. Because if you look at Colossians 2, 3, it says, in whom, and that refers to Christ in verse 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, listen to me. In Christ is all wisdom and all knowledge. 
And Christ lives where? For Christians, in me. What a resource. What a resource. In Romans, in verse 23 of chapter 9, he says, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared unto glory. He says, MacArthur says, God, by his mercy, has made us rich now and forever. We are rich. Now, when I read that for the first time, and I thought, Scotty, how come you act so poor? <laughs> I said, I know I'm poor uh, money-wise but uh, and worldly-wise, but we are rich spiritually. You're rich, Scotty. How come you haven't recognized that? And so he goes on to say in Romans eleven thirty three. He, God says it again. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's so rich in knowledge, so rich in wisdom, so rich in mercy, so rich in grace, so rich in love, so rich in everything. And he deposited all of that in us. It's an incredible reality when you stop to think about it. Isn't it amazing they say you use one-tenth of one percent of your brain. Think about spirituality to have the living God within you and think about how some Christians live. They live like paupers, spiritual paupers, with all that resource. Now, I want to call to, call to mind my parents. My parents are the poorest people I have ever seen. They were so poor. At one time, they were living on like $1,000 a month back in the hills of Tennessee where my parents had retired, and they were poor. They just had nothing, and it wasn't their fault. It just, that was life. And my dad never got past the sixth grade. He was a body and fender guy as he got older. Obviously, he couldn't do that kind of work. Then he got Parkinson's, and his mind was twisted by that disease, but they were rich spiritually. They were the happiest people I ever knew. They were always smiling. They were always happy. And they always saw what God was doing for them, not what God hadn't done for them. And they, they lived like Christ was in them with all of that wisdom and understanding. Uh, back to the quote here. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.19 that we should be filled with all the fullness of God that all of that available resource and power would be used. That's our message. That the, that's the subject of ministry, that the hope for man's honor now and the guarantee for man's honor or glory in the future is the indwelling Christ. Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Christ is the power now and he's the guarantor of our future security with him in heaven. Ephesians 3.17 says, Christ dwells in our hearts, the living God. He says, MacArthur says, I mean, I can't even fathom that principle. The longer I think about it, the more unbelievable it seems. Christ lives within us. Uh, another thought, 2 Corinthians 6.16, MacArthur says, you are the temple. 
2 Corinthians 6, 16, you are the temple of the living God. Now listen, he says, you're the temple of the living God. As he had said, I will dwell in them, walk in them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Emphasis on personal pronouns. I will dwell in them. I will walk in them. And so does Paul say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives where? In me. Yes. He's, MacArthur says, this is a person that studied the Bible for, I don't know how many years, 50, 60 years. He says, just staggering. That's the subject of the ministry. And that is the hope of glory, assurance of our certainty, of our eternal home with him. He goes on to say, last paragraph, and what do you mean by the phrase of hope of glory, Paul? Paul would say, I mean that all the glory that could ever be will only be yours when Christ is in you. The only hope a man ever has for glory now, future, anytime, under any condition, is when Christ dwells in him. God wants to live in you. That's the message. Now, is that a quote or what? I love that quote. I, I, I actually took a picture of it on my phone so I can look at it during the day and remember, Christ in you is my hope of glory. Now, uh, Look at paragraph F, uh, two paragraphs up from the bottom of page two, the hope of glory. Christ in you is said to be the hope of glory. Christ indwelling in the believer we've just seen from scripture is the grounds or basis for our hope, our joyous expectation. Now, hope, as we discuss, is not uh, like somebody said to me and says, well, I hope that you're feeling better. But that's kind of a, a wishful thinking thing. But the language, that spiritual language that was used to express this in the original language means a certainty, a promise, and a, a joyous expectation. And it's our grounds of hope for assurance and eternal life in heaven. Um, Colossians 3, 4 tells us that when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And now in Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the earnest of our inheritance. Now, let's look at that because most of us have been have really understand and have been taught that the Holy Spirit sealed us uh, in our redemption. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, that we should appear to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ and whom you also trusted that you may, uh, after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. In verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So I want to remind us what being 
sealed with the Holy Spirit means God's own spirit, again, quoting MacArthur, God's own spirit comes to indwell the believer and he secures and preserves his eternal salvation. The sealing here that Paul talks about refers to official mark that was used in the Greek culture back then, efficient, uh, a sealing, uh, um, official mark of identification placed on a letter, contract, or other document. And that document then was official because it was under the authority of the persons whose stamp was on the seal. So four primary truths are signified by the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us as having been saved. It's, authentic, it's security and authenticity, reflects ownership, and it reflects the authority of God. So the Holy Spirit is given by God to us as his pledge for the believer's future inheritance and glory. So not only does Christ live on us, but the Holy Spirit is the seal that we have to reflect our security, the authenticity, and the ownership and the authority of God. And that Holy Spirit is given to us by God as his pledge for future inheritance. So we have the Holy Spirit lives within us and the Lord Jesus Christ lives in us as our hope for glory, our joyous expectation. And uh, let's look at the Spirit. I'm looking, see the passage, look at F, where I've mentioned that he's the grounds for our hope, the Lord Jesus Christ is, and Colossians 3, 14. In Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit is talked about as the earnest or seal of our inheritance. Christ in you is the promise of glorification Goodspeed calls it that. Um, and a scholar named Scott, not me, calls it Christ is the certainty of salvation. And it is item G there, Christ is whom we preach. Now, um, The Old Testament predicted the coming of Messiah. This I'm quoting from um, um, commentary on 27, verse 27, that Christ, to whom Christ, to whom God would make, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So MacArthur says, the Old Testament predicted the coming of Messiah and that the Gentiles would partake of salvation. But it did not reveal that the Messiah would actually live in each member of his redeemed church, made up mostly of Gentiles, that, believed in all, that believers, both Jew and Gentile, now possess, now possess the surpassing riches of the indwelling Christ is the glorious revealed mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We now possess, the surpassing means unlimited, far beyond what we could imagine. The surpassing 
spiritual riches of the indwelling Christ is the glorious revealed mystery. Now, the hope of glory, the indwelling spirit of Christ is a guarantee to each believer of future glory. We, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, that you and I could realize what it means to have Christ within us and to take advantage. We already have all the resources that we need. We can't push a button and have that pop up like our instant culture teaches us. It's not microwavable, you know, where you, you do, it, it takes time to develop you, ourselves to be able to take advantage of those riches and resources, but we have them and they're available. We have answer. We have, we have the resources for every problem we come across. I don't know if you've ever met someone that had a major, major problem and you know, and you think, how in the world did they get through that? Christ in them, the hope of glory. Christ lives within them. He gave them the surpassing riches and resources to allocate to live through that process. It's amazing what the Lord does through us. Now, Christ is our certainty of salvation. Look at item G, the last paragraph. Uh, this is verse 28 beginning of verse 28, and whom refers to Christ in verse 27, which is Christ anew, the hope of glory, whom we preach. And that, that's an emphatic we, like uh, it's, it's, we talked about in the past, sometimes in other languages, not so much English, we generally will put in the subject for using a pronoun, I, we, he, they, we will put the pronoun there so we know who we're talking about. But in other languages, the verb has the pronoun in the suffix or ending of the verb. And you have to learn all the suffixes, and that's one of the hard things about foreign languages. You got to learn all those, those verb uh, types of, that have the suffixes that teach, that tell you what you're referring to, uh, the pronoun. And here, the verb has the pronoun uh, we, but he actually adds the pronoun in the, in the text. So it's like, we, we preach. So it's doubled, and that has an emphasis. And, and most scholars mean that the idea is contrasting. We, we preach as opposed to they. So it's contrasting. I don't know if you get that, but it, it's used to distinguish what Paul is saying from what the heretics are saying those that have the heresy that they're teaching, uh, that, are, that are really corrupting the Colossians. So the idea is contrasting we versus they. And the, the preach is a word here is used to proclaim with authority or a solemn public declaration. And it has, a more, has more significance than the most common word for preach that is often used. Let's look at the top of page three. Now, um, I want to read a summary of what we just looked at. And this is by Charles Erdman. And he says, the word of God proceeds to describe, you know, that term, the word of God, proceeds to describe as the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations. The word mystery is not to be connected with the beliefs or practices of ancient 
mystery religions, those religions that really portrayed you had to have a special secret knowledge. Uh, it, was a, it had been a common word for secret, the word mystery. In the New Testament, it's used to describe something once concealed, but now revealed. It denotes not something which men are hiding from their fellow men, but something which could have never been known by men had it not been for a divine revelation or disclosure. It's not something which is hard to be understood, but which, uh, or which must be kept secret, but it is a reality which God has revealed so that it may be proclaimed to the world. Mystery is a, is a truth revealed, and it's open to all. Paul declares the gospel to be a mystery which was unknown in time past or which, uh, or which God only partially had revealed, but now hath it been manifested to his saints. Now, the word saints is used to describe Christians in general who are regarded as the people of God, persons separated unto the service of God. Roman Catholic Church gets together, they meet, they pick people that they think that should have sainthood. We teach that all of us are saints set apart by God for his use and service to him. So to these saints, through no merit of their own, but by the grace and will of God, this mystery has been made known in all its glory. Paul states it this way, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, the full wealth of divine mercy and the full wealth of his goodness has been revealed in the inclusion of the Gentile peoples of all the world in the saving purposes of God. It was, it was in the mission of the Gentile world entrusted first to Paul that the universality and the full glory of the gospel was made known. God chose to use Paul to reveal that mystery, that truth revealed, formerly unknown, to mankind. So the essence of this mystery, the center of the gospel, is Christ, which is in you, writes the apostle, the hope of glory. The Christ who was preached as Savior among the Gentiles, the Christ who was working in the Gentile as well as the Jewish world, or the Christ who is a living presence was dwelling in the Colossians believer, this Christ himself, the pledge, the assurance, the living hope of the glorious immortality awaiting those who put their trust in him. Now, I'm a pretty good writer. I wish I could write like that. What an expression of what we just talked about. But I wanted to go through it in detail so that we would recognize the incredible significance of Christ living in us. And that's our hope of glory. Um, look at that note at the top of page three. Um, in verse 28a, Paul's, we, we were talking about Paul's message here. What did Paul and his commissioning to preach, what was his message? What was he saying? 
Well, Paul des describes this message by a number of phrases. He was described this message first as preaching Christ in verse 25. And <clears throat> he, I'm sorry, he first described his message as preaching Christ. And then uh, in verse 25, he stated that the message was the word of God. And verse 26, he described it as the mystery of God. And Paul understood that his message was not a legal or philosophical or other system. It's not a series of spirits or emanations or rules or regulations that the gospel had been perverted to in the heresy that he is refuting here. But the message of the gospel is Christ. And it's underlined in your handout. Christ, a person who is our creator, our redeemer, our salvation, our hope, our certainty, our glorious expectation of being with him. Um, and J. Vernon McGee here. How many of you heard, have heard J. Vernon McGee speak? He's got that Texas drawl that, that I love because I'm from the South. And if I start listening too long to him, I'll start talking like him. Uh, he said, whom we preach. What does Paul mean, uh, whom we preach? Well, uh, J. Vernon McGee says, the gospel is not what we preach, but it is whom we preach. No man has ever preached the gospel who hasn't preached Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He's eternal life. John, in scripture, wrote that he was going to show us eternal life and that he had seen eternal life. Who, whom John, who, who had John seen? He had seen Christ. As my friend, and he goes on to say, he used to say this, my friend all the time, and my friend, today, you either have him or you don't have him. The gospel is Christ. What he has done for us in his death and resurrection and what he is going to do in the future. That is the gospel of Christ. So the gospel is a person. It is Christ. And if we have Christ, we have salvation. Christ lives us. And that's the mystery that he lives in us. And it's the hope of glory. And I pray you'd meditate on that. It's who, not what. We often talk about what, but it's really who. We have Christ. He is the center of the gospel. Next week, we're going to talk about Paul's method. And I'm going to stop now questions that you might have. We all know we have the Holy Spirit. Now you know that Christ is in you. And I love that song. A couple of weeks ago, I read it. The, the verses, Christ in you. Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation is this. Christ liveth in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this, this verse that just astounds us that you've sent the Lord Jesus Christ beside the Holy Spirit to live within us. Father, I pr pray that you would help us to avail ourselves of the spiritual riches, wisdom, and knowledge that are therefore within us and available to us. Lord, may we be wise. May you help us to live a life that is according to your plan. Help us to be Christ-like in all that we do or say.
And Lord, in those difficult situations, may we be wise and not foolish. And I pray that you would bless each family that's here, that you would be with those that are ill at home or those that are sick and those that are facing surgeries and dealing with radiation and many different kinds of treatment, those that are disheartened and discouraged, that you would help them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.